We are in a series called Convictions, looking at the things that we believe about the Bible. We believe that God has to say about us. In fact, what we're doing is we're journeying through our statement of faith. Uh, We are in part six today, so we're kind of right smack in the middle of the series. We're going through ten parts. Uh, And if you don't have our statement of faith, you can pick one up at any of our connection centers. You can find it online if you're worshiping with us online. Uh, We encourage you to have a copy of that so you can see everything that our statement of faith declares. Uh, But today, as I told you in part six, we're talking about what do we believe about salvation. Uh, I think this, perhaps more than any other in this series, is foundational and fundamental. Most of us are here because we've experienced salvation. So we've experienced God's rescue mission for us. It's the reason why the church exists, because God has rescued us into his family, and he has sent us to our communities, to the lost, to share the good news, the gospel of Jesus that Jesus saves. So you may not hear anything today that you've never known or never heard. Perhaps you will. Uh, But much of this will be reminders. But my encouragement for you is this, is that, man, everything starts at this point. Everything begins with salvation. And the reality is none of us, when we received salvation, understood everything that was going on. We couldn't theologically explain it. We couldn't even articulate it. We just knew there was something in us that said, I need Jesus. And somebody told me after first service, he said, man, I remember my salvation. He said, I was 20 years old. And he said, I was, I was at a, a revival. Uh, and he said, I thought I was good. And he said, I was miserable for two days. And I was like, God, why am I so miserable? And he said, then I realized it was conviction. I'd never truly given my life to Jesus. So he said, that third night, I, I walked down front and I gave my life to Jesus and I received salvation. He said, I'll never forget it. He said, there's nothing like it. Man, when you truly give your life to Jesus. And many of us in this room can probably point back to a point, man, to a moment where God rescued us, where he saved us. What a beautiful thing. What a powerful moment. Yet I want you to know it doesn't just have to be just a moment. Man, God is up to something in salvation in your life, even today. So let's journey through this together. We're going to do like we've been doing through the series. We're going to read our paragraph statement from our statement of faith, then we'll go back and unpack the the numerous statements from it uh, and look at what it means for us. Part six, what we believe about salvation. Starts with this. It says, salvation is God's free gift to us, but we must accept it. We can never make up for our sin by self-improvement or good works, only by trusting in Jesus Christ as God's offer of forgiveness can anyone be saved from sin's penalty. When we turn away from our self-ruled life and turn to Jesus in faith, we are saved from eternal death. We talked last week about eternity. Eternal life begins the moment one receives Jesus Christ into their life by faith. Salvation was paid for by the death and resurrection of Christ and is given to us by his grace through faith. Let's pray a moment. Father God, we thank you today for salvation. God, we thank you that you have saved us, that you have rescued us, God, that the vast majority of us have already experienced this. God, for those who have already experienced this today, I pray that you make it alive and fresh anew in our lives. God, that as you said in Revelations, that you would restore us to our first love, God, if our enthusiasm for our salvation has grown dim, if we've lost sight of what you've done in our lives. 
Lord, if there's anyone here on site with us or online who has not received your salvation, God, even someone like that man in first service who said, I, I thought I was good my whole life until I was 20, I realized I'd never actually received salvation. God, I pray that you would draw them to you today, God, that you would, by your kindness, lead them to repentance. God, we thank you that you are good, that you are for us, and that you so earnestly desire all to be saved. So we ask that you would do that today in our midst, and we thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. Amen. Lots to unpack this morning, and what I'm about to say is true of any of our paragraphs, anything in our statement of faith, but I think it's especially true today. Uh, One paragraph cannot accurately sum up everything that the Bible says about salvation, right? When when we say this is what we believe about salvation, these are things we believe about salvation. This is not everything we believe about salvation. Does that make sense? Uh, If we were to do everything we believed about salvation, this series would go for years uh, because the Bible has so, so much to say about salvation. So all we're going to do this morning is scratch the surface. We're going to cover the basics, the most important things. Uh, But the reality is God is going to be constantly revealing things to us about our salvation throughout our walk with him. And we'll never fully comprehend all that he's done on this side of heaven. But we're going to do our best to at least comprehend these six statements about salvation in our statement of faith this morning. The first thing that we see is salvation is God's free gift to us but we must accept it, right? We can illustrate this a number of ways. Perhaps my favorite way is a, a Christmas gift or a birthday gift. How many of you guys are, are gifts people? Man, you, you, man, you get fired up for gifts, okay? I have a daughter who is a gifts love language. Alexa is all about gifts. She just had a birthday last Sunday. Uh, she turned six years old, and so we have been celebrating gifts in our home. It's something incredible that gifts mean to her. She just lights up. There's a, a different side of her that comes out when she receives gifts. I know Naomi is a gifts loves la- love language. She's amazing at giving gifts. Uh, she puts thought into those gifts. I know there are others of you as well. And we thank those of you who are gifts love languages. My mother-in-law is a gifts loves language, and I am very blessed to have married into her family. Worked out in my favor uh, uh, in, a, in a great way. If uh, you are, are given a gift... It's wrapped up, it's boxed up, it's in a gift bag if you're like me and you don't know how to wrap anything. Uh, Man, whatever that form, that presentation of that gift is, if I give you a gift, it's yours, but it's not really yours until you unwrap it, right? Like it's not doing you any good in the gift bag. It's not benefiting you in the box or in the wrapping paper. It might be some joy of looking at the gift. It might be some pleasure of wondering what's in the gift, But you haven't really received the gift until you've opened that gift. Uh, Or in our generation, we could illustrate it like this with gift cards. Even after you open a gift card, you still haven't actually done anything with the gift until you take the gift card out and you go use it, right? Uh, I saw a statistic years ago, like $2 billion in unused gift cards every year in our economy. Gift cards are like the greatest scam of all time, right? Uh, they They are racking up. And I wonder how many people are out there who have received a gift card for eternal life, but they've never swiped the card. Man, that is sitting there ready for them, that their name is on it. Jesus died in their place. He paid the price for their sin, and they've never tapped into it. You see, salvation is a free gift, praise God. 
There's nothing I can do to earn it. There's nothing I can do to deserve it. It is God's free gift to us, but we have to accept it. We can't do anything to make ourselves worthy of it, but we still have a part to play in the process. Ephesians chapter 2 puts it like this. Starting in verse 8, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved, past tense, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In other words, Billy Graham wasn't worthy of salvation. Your praying grandmother wasn't worthy of salvation. Insert your favorite Christian here, the person you look up to the most as a believer here, the one whose legacy has impacted your life the most. We praise God for those saints who have gone before us. We thank God for those who have blazed the trail, but none of us have ever been worthy of it. It is not by works so that no one can boast. None of us have ever deserved this thing. But he says it's by grace, that's God's work in this, through faith, that's our responsibility in this, right? It's God's free gift, but we must accept it. We have to combine our faith with his grace. Now, here's the amazing thing about faith is God gives us that too. Man, that's from God as well. He awakens in us the ability to have faith, but we still have to exercise that faith in order to receive salvation. Number two, We can never make up for our sin by self-improvement or good works. Never, ever, in no way possible can we make up for our sin by white-knuckling it, by determining I'm going to take these seven steps of self-improvement by doing enough good stuff. So often we think of salvation as, hey, I've got to go to church every Sunday, or I've got to give, or I've got to serve, or I've got to love people better, or I've got to stop sinning, I've got to get rid of this thing in my life, and the reality is that God calls us to all those things. Man, that God wants those things in our life, that there are blessings like Pastor Braden talked about in each of those, not just for tithing, there's blessings for for serving, there's blessings for loving people, there's blessings for defeating sin and getting rid of it in our lives, man, we got to aspire to all that, but none of that gives us salvation. We operate from salvation, not for salvation. We operate from a place where we've already received this, so we're not earning it. We're not trying to get our way into heaven. We're recognizing that because of what Jesus has already done, he's worthy of me serving him. He's worthy of me giving. He's worthy of my worship. He's worthy of my love. He's worthy of these things. That's why I do them, not because they somehow give me a place with him in eternity. We can never make up for our sin by self-improvement or good works. Isaiah 64 says it this way. It says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a, like a leaf, and, the, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. What word do you notice that appears repeatedly in that sentence? All. Ms. Teresa's on top of it. All. Three times it uses the word all. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. There is a theme. There's some repetition here. All means all, right? Every one of us. It means you. It means me. It means the best person you know. It means the worst person you know. It means everybody in between. All of us are ultimately unworthy 
of what God has for us. The most famous phrase in there is packed in, I think it's the second one. It says that all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. The greatest thing we can possibly do apart from Jesus is, is dirty. It's filthy. It's gross. It's disgusting. It's in need of cleanliness and redemption that we are incapable of bringing to it. And so Jesus did it for us. None of us can earn our way there. We're incapable. Third, only by trusting in Jesus as God's offer of forgiveness can anyone be saved from sin's penalty. How can I receive salvation? How can I receive forgiveness for my sins? There's only one way. Only by trusting in Jesus Christ as God's sacrifice for sin, as his offer of forgiveness, can anyone be saved from sin's penalty. Jesus says this in John chapter 14, one of his famous I am statements from the book of John where he's declaring I am literally means Yahweh. means he's God. He says, Yahweh, I am the way and the truth and the life. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. One of the most offensive statements in Scripture. One of the most offensive statements to our culture, something that does not sit well with many of us, that does not resound with us, that God would be so exclusive that he would say there's one way. We have multiple ways for everything, right? you got options on how to order at McDonald's. You can go through the app. You can go through the touch screen. You can go through the drive-thru. You can go, like, we got options for everything, and yet God says there's no option here. There's one way. One route, one path to get to the Father, and that path is Jesus Christ. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I think it bears repeating here. It's offensive to us that God is so radically exclusive, but we cannot lose the fact that God is also radically inclusive. He says, there's only one way to me. But he says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. doesn't matter what you look like. doesn't matter your tax bracket. doesn't matter your ethnicity, your language. doesn't matter your sin history. doesn't matter your struggle today, your struggle tomorrow. doesn't matter what you've been through. All of us are welcome in his midst if we choose the path that he's laid out for us. One way there for all. He's radically exclusive, but he's massively inclusive. He invites all to experience him. So there is no other way. It is only by trusting in Jesus Christ as God's offer of forgiveness that any of us can be saved from the penalty of sin. Number four, when we turn away from our self-ruled life and we turn to Jesus in faith, we are saved from eternal death. There's a lot in that one little statement. So let's unpack a few things here. It says, when we turn away from our self-ruled life. Understand this. That's the default. We are born with a self-ruled life. Now, ultimately, yes, we are hopefully given parents who have some place of authority in our life and are determining things. But as the father of a two-year-old, I can tell you, uh, Noah makes a lot of decisions for himself. Uh, He has a mind of his own at two years old. It does not take very long for the selfish nature of mankind to kick in, right? Uh, All of us have seen this and experienced this for ourselves. So I use often this illustration uh, when I I offer a fresh start, when I offer salvation. I'll use a phrase that says, God, Jesus, I give you the throne of my heart. 
Well, the implication there, having mic issues better? Thank you. Sorry. Uh, Jesus, I give you the throne of my heart. The implication there is somebody's already on the throne, and that somebody is me. The reason why I have to give Jesus the throne of my heart is not because there's some other God on the throne. It's because I'm on the throne. Because I live a self-ruled life. I'm doing this on my own. And so when we turn away from our self-ruled life, we recognize, hey, this is empty. This is fruitless. This is not leading me anywhere. Fulfilling, this, this is a failure. We turn from that self-ruled life and we turn to Jesus. We give our life to him. The biblical word for that is repentance. It's when you do a 180 degree turn. You turn from one direction to another direction. So when that happens, we are saved from eternal death. Last week we talked about what is eternal death. Eternal death is separation from God. We talked about how hell is a real place and it's a real miserable place. That everything that we've heard about hell it's true. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of hellfire and brimstone and sulfur. And it's a place nobody wants to go. But we discovered the worst thing about hell isn't any of those things. The worst thing about hell is the absence of the presence of God. That we are fully separated from his presence. You see, First John tells us that every good and pleasing gift comes down from the Father of lights. That everything that's good in your life is a blessing from God, even if you're not a Christian. Even if you've never given yourself to Jesus, that, man, there are blessings that we receive just because there's a good God. All of that comes from him. And when we're ultimately removed from access to him, ultimately removed from, from the opportunity for a relationship from him, ultimately removed from the blessings that he provides for mankind, it's hell. It's a place of eternal death. Romans 10, 9, I quote it all the time, says this. In fact, this is the new NIV translation. It says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So there's a two-part process, and verse 10 kind of unpacks that process for us. It says, for it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and you're saved. So there's two things that happen. There's something that happens inside where, man, my heart turns to God, where my heart believes that, that Jesus really lived, that he really died, that this isn't a fairy tale, this isn't a metaphor, this isn't just some good rules for practical living. This is the truth of eternity that Jesus Christ died in my place because my sin was so great that there was no future for me. It was helpless, it was hopeless. I had no opportunity for redemption outside of him. I gotta believe in my heart. That God raised Jesus from the dead. And he says, if you do, he says, it's with your heart that you believe and you are justified. My favorite definition of justified is it's justified, never sinned. Right? Man, that, that you have now been made just with him. But it's not just my heart. It's not just something that happens inside. It's something that has to happen vocally, verbally as well. It says it's with your mouth that you profess your faith. That you confess, as the old version that I usually quote says, as man, that you declare, as this version says, that there's a declaration from your mouth that has to come out of your lips. It has to come out of your mouth, out of your tongue. Think of it this way. When God created the world, what did he use? His words. He spoke, right? He spoke everything in existence into creation, which is just mind-blowing. 
And so God in his infinite wisdom determined that that thing that had so much power in him that he could speak the world into existence, that you and I would use that same thing to speak salvation into your life. That you must confess. You must profess. You must declare with your mouth out loud. Now, I think there is a grace for people who can't speak, and we can think of people with different, right? That, that, I'm not saying this is a universal application. This is the default mode. I think God is good, and he meets people at where they're at. And if you can't confess with your mouth because of some reason, he's going to let the heart stand. But if you can confess with your mouth, he's going to require you to. He says, you got to confess that Jesus is Lord. you got to declare it. Why? Because it says it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Salvation comes by a declaration of the mouth. Now, again, your mouth doesn't save you. Only Jesus saves you. Only his grace saves you. But this is what he's required. This is what he's asked. And if we look at it, it's a pretty minor ask, right? He's offering me eternity with him. He's offering my sins to be washed away, for me to be justified. He's offering his spirit to live in me, to empower me. He's offering me so much with salvation, and he's saying, I just need you to recognize out loud that I'm Lord. Not just you want to be saved, not just you want to spend eternity in heaven, but that I'm in charge. That it is my rightful place. It's at that point that eternal life begins. Number five. Eternal life begins the moment one receives Jesus Christ into their life by faith. Talks about how many of us can look back and, man, we know the moment of our salvation. Just by a show of hands, how many of you can say, I remember when I received Jesus? Most of the room can remember when they received Jesus. I'm jealous of you guys. You've heard many, probably my story before if you've been here for a long time. Um, I gave my life to Jesus. First time I prayed to receive Jesus, I was two years old. Did it again when I was four. Did it again when I was eight. I don't know what it was about double numbers, but there's some sort of a pattern here. I don't know when it took. I don't know which one was the real one. I don't know at what point I truly gave my life to Jesus. I know it was one of those. I know he's been so, so good to me. I know I've never regretted it. I've never looked back. I've never wished that I hadn't. It's been amazing in my life. I wish I could look back and say, man, this is the moment I got saved. This is the day that it happened for me. I can remember many things God did for me. I can remember my call into ministry. I can remember my baptism in the Holy Spirit. Like, I have some awesome milestone moments that I'm very grateful for. I I wish I could say, man, that was the moment where God saved me. At the same time, I know that by God's grace, he spared me from a lot of misery and a lot of heartache because he saved me so young. Uh, that I'm far, far better off not being able to say what day that it was, that God's grace in my life was, was wonderful to save me early on. But at the moment where you first professed that faith, at the moment where you first declared Jesus' lordship over your life, you received eternal life. That happened. In fact, we saw last week that what happens when you give your life to Jesus is your name gets written down in heaven. There's a book, and it's got to be a big book. It's got to be an awesome book. It's a book with all kinds of languages in it. It's a book, man, from, that represents the entirety of the globe. And in that book, if you raised your hand a minute ago and said, I've given my life to Jesus, your name is written in heaven. In fact, the Bible talks about that, that your name can't be blotted out. What a powerful truth, man, that 
God has rescued you. He's saved you. That's, a, that's an amazing thing. So your eternal life began the moment you gave your life to Jesus. We often think of salvation as past tense. That I think it's the most default mode unless we're sharing salvation with somebody who doesn't know Jesus. We think of our salvation as five years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, whatever that point was where we received Christ. And that's a very accurate way to think of it. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says it this way in verse 21. It says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So past tense, God was pleased to save those who believe. So your salvation, there's a million other verses in scripture that we could point to. Your salvation was past tense. It happened. You received eternal life in the moment that you professed your faith in God, but it doesn't stop there. It didn't just happen in the past. I am saved, was saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. The Bible teaches all three tenses when it comes to salvation, that you've received salvation, you are being saved today, and you will be saved. Let me show you some examples. Again, I'm just going to use one verse for each, but there are multiple for each of these tenses. Uh, just to go back a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians 1, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. I mean, you know, there's some people in the world who think we're fools. There's some people out there that think we're nuts for believing in a, in a flying spaghetti monster. If you're on the internet a lot, you know that phrase. Most of you probably don't know that. There are those who would mock us for thinking there's a God up there who's looking down on us, for thinking that, that someone would actually die for our sin. And I don't say that to, to anger you at those people, to turn you against those people. Those people aren't the enemy. Please understand this. Man, those people are people that God created in his image. Those people are people that God sent Jesus to die for them. God loves them, and we should love them too. But the reality is apart from a revelation of what Jesus has done that can only come from the Holy Spirit, stuff sounds like madness. It sounds crazy. It sounds too good to be true. So it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God, the message of the cross to those who are being saved. Who is being saved? Not just people who are confessing Jesus this moment. It's talking about all of us as believers that we are being saved. See, there's this process that's going on in you right now called sanctification. Where God is turning you into the likeness of Jesus. God in his wisdom chose when you receive Jesus not to make you perfect and whole. Right? He didn't, he didn't take away all of your temptations. He didn't take away all of your flaws, all of your weaknesses. I wish it went that way. At least it didn't do it for me. If he did it for you, we need to have a conversation. So I want to know what happened. The reality is none of us became exactly like Jesus when we came to salvation. We just started a process. And God is constantly in work in that process in your life. He's moving you forward. And I'm cycling it because the reality is it's not linear, right? Like, I wish that it was. I wish that we just went from point A to point B on this, but sometimes I take some steps back. But God is constantly moving us forward. Even though we may take two steps forward, one step back, he's constantly moving us forward. That's the process of sanctification. And so you are being saved. You were saved. You are being saved, and you actually will be saved. Romans 5 puts it this way as one example in Scripture, starting in verse 9. 
And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Verse 10, for if while we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to him, him being God, through the death of his son Jesus, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Twice in two verses, he says, we shall be saved. How much more shall we be saved? So salvation has already happened. You received it at the moment you confessed Jesus. It's happening right now in your life, and it will happen at some point in the future. What happens in the future? You are saved from the wrath of God. The wrath that is rightfully yours because of your sin, because of my sin, because of my failure, because of all the junk that is in me that doesn't belong. I am rightfully destined for the wrath of God. But because of salvation, Jesus stepped in. And why does it say we'll be saved from God's wrath? Because that wrath hasn't been poured out yet. Because that wrath has a future date on it when he will pour out his wrath. And when that day comes that that wrath is poured out on sinners, you will be saved from the wrath of God because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Amen. Amen. Praise God. He has spared us. That's why it's so important for us to tell others. That's why it's so important for us to get the word out. That's why it's so important for us to, to share the good news of the gospel because a day will come when the wrath will be poured out on those who have not received that salvation. See, your salvation is already, but not yet. You've already received every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus when you gave yourself to Jesus, and yet, there's still processes at work, and there's still something coming for us. So salvation has three tenses. You received eternal life the moment you gave your life to Jesus, but he's still up to something. In other words, he's not finished yet. Amen? Number six, salvation was paid for by the death and resurrection of Christ. And it is given to us by his grace through faith. Now, this is like fundamental Christianity 101, right? Like most of us should be able to articulate this, maybe not in these exact words, but if you've been around faith, if you've had any teaching at all, you should be able to say, why are you saved? Because Jesus died for my sins, right? It was paid for by Jesus' death and his resurrection, Man, that, that he had to die as the sacrifice, but he had to come back to life in victory, right? Both of those things had to happen, and it's given to us by him, by grace, through faith. Romans 5 puts it this way. We just read verses 9 and 10 about how we shall be saved. Let's go back to verse 6, one of my favorite sections of Scripture. It says, just, it says you see, at just the right time. That's the appointed time. That's the, the time that God destined for you at just the right moment while we were still powerless. Another transition says while we were still helpless. In other words, there was nothing I could do to save myself, nothing I could do to fix myself. I had no power in the situation. I was destined to die a sinner. And at that moment, Christ died. Not for the godly. Not for the church, not for the people who had it right, not for the people who deserved it. Christ died for the ungodly. The biggest sinner you know, the person who persecutes your faith the most, who mocks you, who puts you down for what you believe, Jesus Christ died for that person. And he died for you. We were all the ungodly at just the right time. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, but... 
for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God, oh, what a beautiful phrase. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Nothing I could do about it. I was helpless. I was destined to die apart from him. And yet at the perfect time, at the appointed time, at the God time, he sent Jesus to die for me. What a beautiful, beautiful truth. We just looked at six statements about salvation, six things that you probably have some concept of, maybe never heard them worded exactly like that. Hopefully it's given you a new revelation of what to appreciate, of what God's done for you or called you back to a place of gratitude in that. I want to close with one last passage of scripture and then an illustration that, that means a lot to me when it comes to salvation. That passage of scripture is 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 quotes from the book of Psalms, and it says this. It says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Because of what Jesus has done. Now, that word death in in the book of Psalms is sheol, which is a, it's the grave, but it has a deeper meaning. It's not hell, but it's a place of separation from God. Um, It's this idea that, that, man, we're not where we want to be. And so the psalmist says, where's your sting? What's he doing? He's prophesying what's going to happen after Jesus comes. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. Everybody say, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't just give us pity. He didn't just, man, offer us, I'm going to wipe away your sins. He actually gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with Frank Peretti, but Frank Peretti was one of my favorite authors growing up, still an, an amazing author, and uh, I heard him speak, and he used this illustration. I don't know if it was his. I don't know if he stole it from somebody else. I'm going to give him credit. Man, if it wasn't him, God can deal with me later on. Uh, but, but I heard this illustration, and it means a lot to me. I think I've only shared it maybe once or twice before. Uh, hopefully, this will help you get an idea of what Jesus did for you. So Frank Peretti tells a story of a father who's out driving with his son sitting behind him. Uh, and there's a wasp in the window. And the son is deathly allergic to bees. Uh, and so this son is, is young. He's three, four, five years old. And the dad keeps telling the kid, stay away from the bee. Stay away from the wasp. But the kid, as kids happen to be, is, is fascinated by it. He's never been stung by a bee. He doesn't know what happens if he's stung by a bee. And maybe the reason why this illustration had always connected with me is, is my little brother did exactly this. Man, when my little brother was like two years old, there was a bee in our window in our house, and he grabbed it. And I can still hear my two-year-old brother screaming from the pain of the sting as he grabbed a hold of that bee. So Peretti says, hey, there's this, this bee, and, and the kid keeps reaching out for it. And the dad, dad as he's driving, keeps telling the son to stop. And and eventually the bee gets close enough to the kid that, that the kid's about to grab it. And so the, the dad slams on the brake very quickly. And the dad reaches back and he grabs the bee and he crushes the bee in his hand. What did he do? He absorbed the sting for his son. What did Jesus do for me? He knew that I was so attracted to sin. So irresistible to me was sin that I was going to grab it and that sin for me was deadly that it was so powerful that it would take my life 
And so God in his goodness reached down and he took the sting. He grabbed the sting of death, the sting of the grave, the sting of hell, and he took it on his son Jesus. And Jesus took the sting so I don't have to. See, the father was innocent in this. The father knew not to touch the bee. The father tried to warn the child not to grab the bee, but the child just couldn't resist. And that child is me. And it's you. Jesus Christ took the sting of sin and death and eternity apart from God. He took the sting for you so that you don't have to. And that should inspire in us the deepest worship. That should inspire in us the greatest love and admiration. That should inspire in us a passionate desire to tell others. You don't have to allow this thing to sting you because Jesus has taken the sting for you.